Um, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to um, be with us this morning and ultimately to teach us. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you um, for this wonderful opportunity that you give us to gather into your house and to study your word. Father, we thank you for your word and, and revealing it to us. And um, it just it, it gives us life. It shows us who you are and you are where life is. We thank you for that. Father, I ask that you would uh, be with those of us who are not here this morning. We've got several uh, in our family that are um, dealing with pain um, physically, emotionally, just are not able to be with us this morning. And I pray that you would just bless them, encourage them, and uh, strengthen them and their families um, as they're going through what they're going through. Father, I also just lift up the family that's here with us this morning and here uh, watching online. I just pray that you would um, fill us with yourself, help us to see your word for what it says, help us to understand it, make it clear and plain to us. And Father, I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, help me to remove what is of me and uh, help me to preach what is your word and not mine. Just thank you for the opportunity you give us this morning. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And that was from Psalm chapter 119, verses 33 through 40. So we're back again in this series of the 10 words. We've been going through this the last several Sundays walking through each one of God's commandments. We've been studying Exodus chapter 20, and today is going to be no different. We're going to, we're going to roll back right back into that. We're going to actually talk about the, uh, the eighth commandment that God gives to us um, in his word in Exodus chapter 20. But before we get into that, I, I just want to say something really quick, just to kind of, kind of bring us back, level set us a little bit, and remind ourselves of what, um, what the context is where where God is providing these commandments, who he's providing them to, and what it's all about. Why is he, why is he declaring these things for us? So I just want to remind you that um, this, these commands, what God has given to uh, us, was given to the Israelites, right? This, was, this came, he, gave, he provided them to Moses, and then Moses shared them with the Israelites. These are God's people. These are God's people. They're his kingdom. And uh, they were given to them so that they would be able to know what distinguishes them from everyone else, from the world. And ultimately, the world benefits from hearing and learning about these commandments because God gave these commands to his people so that they would be able to know the difference between his kingdom, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness. So that they would know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The last few messages that I have taught have been extremely difficult for me personally and probably for some of you. Because we've been going through the second table of the law and that's where it starts to really start to get personal. Right? The first table is like, you know, uh, make sure that you're worshiping God alone and following God and, and doing that. Yeah, we get that, we get that. But then we start getting out of the nitty-gritty and how it just gets into our life. The Word of God is a two-edged sword and cuts straight to the Spirit and the morrow. It's hard to hear sometimes. And I want to remind you of some things related to this. So, Sometimes we, uh, we hear these words and we think about the, the commands and we get, might even get down on ourselves because it's, it's difficult. It's hard to hear because then we start to feel like, am I really 
saved? I, I, I deal with these things. I deal with these sins all the time. And I know I'm not supposed to because Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 15 says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. That's hard to hear because we know that we don't keep his commands. It's, it can be very difficult. Even uh, in Luke chapter 10, let me read to you real quickly here uh, a, an interaction that happened between Jesus and a lawyer. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to, to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he's talking to a lawyer. And the lawyer says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So let me ask you this morning, Do you love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength, And with all your mind, do you love him? You'll say, yes, I I do, but but I'm still dealing with this stuff that you're talking about, these these commands, this sin in my life. Some of you may be feeling that way. Let me turn to Romans chapter 7 and share something with you here related to that. Because if you're feeling that way, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I can't even find Romans. Here we go. It's a good start this morning. Here we go. So in Romans, Paul is laying out, the uh, starting out uh, what it means to be uh, a believer, what it means to be saved. And he talks about, um, he talks about sin. And he, and he says that the way we know what sin is is because of the law that God has given us, the commands that God has given us. He starts that out in, in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And then he gets into last week, I actually mentioned last week, some areas where, where I feel it's like you get to this point where you're, you're wrestling with sin and you're wrestling with wanting to be a, a child of God, but yet your flesh still kind of wants to dabble in this area of sin. And it's a struggle. I do the things that I don't want to do, but then I don't do the things I do want to do. That's what Paul talk, talks about. And even Paul talking about himself in that, in, in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. And let me read to you how he finishes off this chapter in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's a battle. And as if you're a believer here today, you feel that battle, or you should. You should feel that battle. John MacArthur, when he was talking about this passage, explained that there was a practice that was given, that was used to to punish murderers. And one of these methods was to take the body of the person that this murderer killed and strap it to the the murderer. And they would have to live with that body decaying around them, on them. Can you imagine the disease that would set in on your life? That's the picture Paul's talking about here. As believers, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But yet we still struggle with this sin, with this this flesh that's clinging to us, that just brings us down. Paul is encouraged because he knows that Jesus will deliver him from that body of death. 
at some point in our lives. The new creation, we've already been created the, uh, as believers. Then there's a new creation, but we're stuck to this sin. We've got this body, this flesh that just, yeah, we hate it. And we should. And if you don't hate it, you better listen up. Because you, you might not know Jesus. If you can sit through these sermons and you can sit through learning about the Ten Commandments and it doesn't make you itch, it doesn't make your skin crawl. It doesn't make you go, God, I can't believe I'm, I, I am not worthy. If you don't think that way, then you better start waking up. Because according to what the Bible teaches us, if you enjoy sin and you can settle with it, and you can settle with these commands and live in it, you're a child of the devil. All right, let's get into it. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 15. So um, in honor of reading God's word, I encourage you to uh, stand with me as we study this passage. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. The Bible records, you shall not steal. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You shall not steal. Pretty simple, right? Well, just like last week and the week before, there's a pretty simple statements. And yet we find that some of the areas we struggle with the most. You shall not steal. Very clear and simple command. You shall not steal. All right, so let's talk about what does this command imply? What does this command imply? Well, for one thing, I want to mention, it would be impossible to steal something from someone if that person doesn't first have ownership of that thing, right? It wouldn't be considered theft because if that person doesn't own it, then, it's, then there, it doesn't really make sense. It's not, it's, you're not stealing. Well, let me put it another way. This command, you shall not steal, gives dignity to personal property. This command gives dignity to personal property. In fact, by giving this command, God himself, God himself is dignifying personal property. The right to personal property as a product of our work. And I'm going to show you how I know that's the case. Well, first we have the command, so we know in one way that God is dignifying personal property because, again, if we didn't have personal property, you wouldn't be able to steal. Everything would just be everybody's. Or nothing would be anybody's. I mean, I don't know, however you want to look at it, right? But God is establishing, in his, has established in his creation the dignity of personal property. By stealing from someone, you aren't simply stealing that person's possession you are assaulting that person's God-given dignity and right to enjoy the produce of that person's work. By stealing from someone, it is ultimately an insult to God because it denies and rejects the order he established as creator. So let me show you where that establishment takes place. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go right to the beginning and we're going to work our way through the whole Bible to the end. Are you ready for it? All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1. Start, uh, we're going to read verses, I'm going to read verses 27 through 28. Okay, we're going to see how the dignity of personal property is established during creation. So I'm going to read verses 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so right here, I just want to key in on, a, on an interesting phrase here. God commands mankind to subdue the earth, to subdue it. Now, this isn't uh, taking over some, doing some sort of unruly uh, control or authority over it. The word subdue it actually points to God's command to mankind to be a steward of the earth. To be a steward of the earth, to bring order to it and to its inhabitants, and to yield its riches. That's what that word subdue is referring to. To yield its riches. And all of this is done on God's behalf. Right? God created it, and then he sets mankind in order to subdue it. All of this was done to bring glory to God and to accomplish his purposes. To accomplish his purposes. So again, it points to God's command to mankind, this subdue it, this phrase subdue. Points to God's command to mankind to be a steward of the earth, to bring order to it and to its inhabitants, and to yield its riches. To yield its riches. Now I want to turn to Genesis chapter 2. So we're going to move forward a little bit. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Okay, so this is after uh, God has created man. We see earlier in chapter 2 that um, God uses the dust, takes the dust of the earth and forms man and breathes life into him. Okay, that's all happening here. Now we're going to talk about where God places the man. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And we know the rest of that, but I'm going to stop there because I'm going to point to what's going on here. So first we see that he places man in the garden, the Garden of Eden, that's what that was created, to work it and to keep it. Okay? Well, wait a minute, I thought work was the result of the fall. <laughs> no. Work was established before the fall. If you look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, the second half of verse 5 says, uh, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. So he's talking about there were the, that there weren't any bushes or um, plants in the field yet, and God had not caused it to rain on the land. What else does it say? And there was no man to work the ground. There was no man to work the ground. So what this tells us is that God established the world to be worked, to work the ground. This is all before sin came in. This is all before the fall. God's establishing dignity of work. And God designed it, designed the earth in such a way that it required being worked. The implication there, and there was no man to work the ground means it needed to be worked. And then later on, so I mentioned that God placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then, in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, so yes, we know that God gave every seed and fruit available for food and provided that. But if you're working the ground, it's creating more. It's creating more fruit. It's building more trees. And so God has given him the fruit of the labor. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. So God says, you will reap the benefits of your work. You will enjoy it. You will eat of every, you can eat of every tree of the garden. You know, we like to focus on the next piece of that. But you can't eat from the knowledge of tree of good and evil. But what did he say before? You can eat of every tree. Except for one. 
Okay. So conclusions from these, what I get from these two passages, and, and as we see the image of God in man and how God has de, de, uh, created the world and ordained it and designed it, we see that personal property is rooted in being created in the image of God. Think about that. Personal property is rooted in being created in the image of God. And secondly, we see man's worth for his work is also rooted in being created in the image of God. Man worked the ground for God, and God provided all that he needed. So we see personal property is rooted in being created in the image of God, and man's worth for his work is also rooted in being created in the image of God. And we're going to touch on that piece a little bit later. So we've seen in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the command, you shall not steal. We see it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this dignity of personal property established during creation. It's also implied in further explanation of God's law in Exodus chapter 22. So turn with me there, Exodus chapter 22. And I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 9. Just to give you more understanding that this is implied. Personal property is implied. It's a God-given right. It is a God-given... Um, it's God-given to us. Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for, a, for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether there is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the, uh, from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain of the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near, the, near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor, uh, neighbor's property. For every breach of trust whether it is for an ox or a donkey, for a sheep or a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So we see God establishes this dignity of personal property. It, I mean, otherwise, why would you establish these other laws? You know, if you're, if you're, if you're stealing from someone or you cause someone's field to, to be burnt up, if it's not that person's field, if it's not that person's property, then... What needs to be restored? What, what, why does there need to be restitution? Yet God establishes that there must be restitution. The other thing I think it's interesting in this passage, especially in verse 9, is that God mentions the word trust. For every breach of trust. And that's really what this comes down to. Stealing, ultimately, is a breach of trust. I mean, why do you think we have security guards at banks? Why do we have locks on our cars? How many times do you make sure the car is locked when you leave the parking lot or when you're leaving your car? I do it two or three times and I make sure I hear the horn. <laughs> Trust is broken. Trust is broken. And the reason why God is establishing this law for us as people of the kingdom, as Israelites, and as Christians, by extension, by establishing this law, he's telling us how we should live so that the world can see us as different. I mean, why would people who are of the world, who don't know Jesus, want to come into a church full of robbers? Because they don't, why would, why would I trust them? How can I trust God? Think about that. It is our responsibility to show the world the kingdom of God. That we are his children. And that's why God is establishing this law. 
So next, we're going to get into the depth of theft. So we've talked about the dignity of personal property. We see how it was established during creation. This, this element this of personal property. Now we're going to see the depth of theft. So some of us may look at this command and go, well, that's easy. I haven't stolen from anybody. Have you? The depth of theft. So we've talked about stealing someone else's property. That's pretty clear, right? It's pretty black and white. You know, I'm gonna, I, 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 obviously, stealing means if I, you know, if I come into a, if I take someone's car and take it from them, that would be theft because, uh, because that would be stealing someone else's property. It's very clear. But what else does this command prohibit? Turn with me to First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy chapter one. So uh, for those of you that were here last week or heard the sermon um, last week, I actually came to 1 Timothy chapter 1 to show you some terms that Paul used as an extension and building upon the command that was given in Exodus chapter 20. And he does the same thing here with this law, with this command, you shall not steal. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul records for Timothy... Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Okay, so let's go back to um, verses 9 and 10 here. So, as I mentioned last week, and I'll reiterate it again, what Paul was doing here is he's laying out the second table of the law for Timothy. That's what he's doing here, and he's showing him. So what we see is, if you go back to verse 9, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, so honor your father and mother, for murderers, you shall not steal. I'm sorry, you shall not murder. We're doing steal today. Verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. We talked about that last Sunday. You shall not commit adultery. And the next thing he says is enslavers. Enslavers. Well, that's an interesting word to use when talking about you shall not steal. I mean, he's going right in line here. Because then we see liars, which we'll talk about next week. You shall not lie. And perjurers, talking about coveting. Enslavers. Why would he use that word? In Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, the same word, the same phrase, the same idea is used here. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Again, talking about enslavers, this word that Paul used here. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Another word that could be used here in, in, uh, in place of steals is whoever kidnaps a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So Paul's making the connection of slavery to you shall not steal. Now, wait a minute. Uh, there was some. There was slavery within within um, Israel. There was some slavery uh, built into that. Okay. Well, that's a different culture. There were times when people when it was so hard for people financially that they would sell themselves into slavery so that they would be paid and could work for uh, for someone like a servant. Uh, that's exactly that's what kind of was. But this is talking about something very different. This is talking about actually taking someone, stealing them from their current position, but their current location, and putting them to work or selling them for their own for this for the seller's personal gain, not for the gain of the person. Enslavers. Doing this, doing what's mentioned here in Exodus chapter 21, and also what Paul is mentioning here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, enslaving is an insult to a person's dignity. Now remember where we get dignity from. It's not from ourselves. It's from being created in the image of God. So enslaving is an insult to a person's dignity. You're not only robbing them of their life, you're robbing them 
of their right to be paid what they are worth for the work that they do. In this context, the person enslaved is not being paid. They're being sold for someone else's benefit. It's an insult to their dignity, robbing them of their life, and robbing them of their right to be paid for what they're worth or the work that they do. This concept actually extends further than we'd like to think. It extends further than we think. One area that this extends to is employers not paying a fair market wage or withholding payment. Employers not paying a fair market wage or withholding payment. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. This is an example of robbery, where the employer is making out on the employed. We see the dignity of man and the worth that, they, that he is worth, that he or she is worth in the work that they do. And because of the work that they do, they deserve to be paid for that work. Another area where this extends to is negotiation. Now think about this. I mean negotiation for personal gain at the expense of someone else. I really don't like buying cars. Because I know that the guy on the other end of the table is just trying to make sure that he gets paid and gets my money, right? Now, I'm not dissing car sellers or, or you know, automobile um, owners and things like that, but, um, but negotiation for personal gain at the expense of someone else. Let me show you where this is found. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 35 through 36. You shall, not, or you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. Verse 36. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what I'm getting at here with this concept of negotiation, especially negotiation for personal gain at the expense of someone else, when we come to the negotiation table, the goal should be figuring out what the interests are of the other parties. What are my interests? What are your interests? And let's come to maximize the potential for the opportunity that we have together. Rather than trying to cut someone loose of something or, or cut them out of, a, out of a good deal. Because the attitude is about me and what I can gain from the situation. And then sometimes both parties come to the table like that. It's funny. So uh, in school, I'm not in school, at work, uh, we had a training um, class that I actually attended. That was uh, through Harvard Business School. And uh, Harvard Business School has this class called Negotiation Mastery. And uh, talking about all the different ways to maximize the potential, maximize the zone of a, of a potential agreement and things like that. And the conclusion that they had when they got down to the end of the class was the best way to negotiate the best way to maximize the potential for both parties is to understand the interests of both parties, to be concerned about the interests of both parties. And I was like, wow, that sounds biblical. <laughs> and they came to that. And through all this research and things like that, they could have just read the Bible and figured it out. I want to point out something else to you that's interesting with this passage in Leviticus 19, verse 35 through 36. At the end, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, why, why at this point would God remind them of that? Is he just, you know, berating them with reminding them, look at me, I've taken you out of the land of Egypt. What were the Hebrews doing in Egypt? And why did God remove them? They were slaves. They were enslaved. I think God is making a connection 
to enslavement with this idea that we see in Le- Leviticus 19, verse 35 to 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. Don't enslave each other. I brought you out of that. God brought you, God brought you out of that. Don't enslave each other. Another example of enslaving that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, I would argue is child labor. Child labor. Because the child probably isn't getting paid their fair share or what they're worth for the work that they're doing because they don't have the authority to use it on their own. Child labor, taking advantage of an opportunity for personal gain. That's the heart, that's the attitude, that's the mindset that this is ultimately revealing, that what Paul reveals here in 1 Timothy. So how often, this is where the rubber meets the road, how often are we unaware of our support of these practices? We live in an extremely complicated economic society, don't we? And as I was studying this, for me personally, I started to go, okay, I don't like this because I know what's being implied here. Right? Look at the tag on your shirt. How unaware, or how often are we unaware of our support of these practices? Now, I do think there's Obviously, there's forgiveness for all of this, and we're going to talk about that later, okay? We're going to talk about forgiveness, okay? But I think there's forgiveness in just ignorance in some cases. But um, guess what? You're not ignorant anymore because we're talking about it today. So I'm sorry, not really. Um, that's, the, that's the purpose of a preacher. And I'm not trying to elevate myself. The, purpose, the reason why God laid out the commands is that you would understand what sin is and stay away from it and get away from it. That was the whole point, to know who is of the kingdom of light Who is of the kingdom of God, a child of God? And who is of the kingdom of darkness, a child of the devil? That is the point. And that is the purpose of what we're doing here today. So how often are we unaware of these practices and our support of them? How often do we comply? How often do we comply? In a fallen world and in an extremely complex economic society, it's extremely difficult to distance ourselves from this command. It's extremely difficult. So instead of complying, we, as children of God, people of His kingdom, we should be striving to build and support an economy where people can work, make a fair wage, and enjoy the fruit of his or her labor. We should strive to support that and build that. And we have opportunities to do that in a democratic republic that no other world, another area in the world has the ability to do. To build and support an economy where people can work, make a fair wage, and enjoy the fruit of his or her labor. Paul even talks about this. So we talked about Paul earlier in 1 Timothy. We're going to go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I've actually got it on the screen, so you don't have to turn there um, with me. But uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. What's the reason? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Well, that's interesting. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's think about that. Who is anyone in need? What is that referring to here? What is Paul referring to here? Anyone in need. That's someone who legitimately cannot work. Who are unable to work or unable to make a living for whatever reason. Legitimately unable to do those things. Paul says the responsibility should fall back on the laborer to support those who are in need who cannot labor. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If we don't have a right to personal property, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, if we don't have a right to personal property, we do not have the ability to care for those who, are, who legitimately are unable to work. Do you think about that? If we don't have the right to our own property to be able to choose what we do with that, we are unable to help those who are unable to work. We're unable to provide for themselves. And in a fallen world, there will always be people in this category, in the category of being unable to work. We see it all throughout the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, we've got beggars because of their sickness, because they're lepers, because of whatever the ailment or whatever the reason. In a fallen world, in a world of sin, there will always be people who are in need. And guess what? We are people in need as well. We talked about Paul uh, mentioning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, that the thief should no longer work, let him labor. The reason for all of this is that so he may have something to share with anyone in need or be able to give. Let me talk to you about the ultimate gift. Because guess what? We're in need of a gift as well. We are in need of a gift. The ultimate gift. We are people who cannot achieve salvation on our own. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We do not, we do not believe in a works-based salvation. So everything that I've talked about here, okay, making sure that you're apply, uh, uh, um, applying it to your life exactly, perfectly, fully, you're not going to be able to do it because we, don't, we cannot work our way to heaven. We cannot work our way to salvation. God provided that gift. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We've, been, we've come back here uh, the last few Sundays in Matthew chapter 5. Now we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be reading verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, wait a minute here. We just talked about personal property and the dignity of personal property. Right? I should be able to be, I, I, have, I have the, uh, the, based on the root of the image of God being created in the image of God, I have a, I have a God-given, God-given right to own things, right? To own stuff. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Where do we lay the treasures? In heaven. Again, he's talking to us. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you this. Do we rob from God? Do we rob from God? I mean, ultimately, everything belongs to him, right? Ultimately, everything is his, but he gave it to us. He gave it to us. He has entrusted us with his stuff so that we would accomplish his purposes. Remember what I talked about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? We were created to subdue the earth, to accomplish his purposes, and to be a steward of the things, the stuff that he gives us. Jesus commands us to invest in heavenly, eternal things, where the investment will be, get this, will be secure for how long? For eternity. That's a pretty cool retirement plan, huh? Especially now, watching some of the, the bumps and going up and forth, back and forth and things like that, right? 
The investment will be secure for eternity. Our heart goes to where we put our treasure. And if we have a heart for investing in earthly things, stockpiling material goods, we lean toward developing a protection plan because of thieves. And we might even lean toward developing a plan or comply with practices of sin and theft to protect our wallets and to keep it full. And I'm not saying money is bad. That is not what I'm saying. But what Jesus says here is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart? Where is your heart this morning? Let me read a passage here just to further encourage you in this investing for eternity and investing for the future that God is creating in his kingdom in an area where your investment is secure. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's talking to believers here. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a pretty cool retirement plan. The things that you invest in, how you spend your money, shows you where your heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There will be people in heaven, right? There will be people in heaven, we know this. How cool would it be to be every, every single day for all of eternity to have someone look to you and say, thank you. I'm here because you shared what God did for you. And we know that Jesus is the one who saves. But saving comes through the spreading of the word and the spreading sharing the gospel. That is the ultimate gift. The ultimate gift. Now I want to close this morning with a tale of two thieves. A tale of two thieves. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. I promise we will end here. Maybe. We'll see. Luke chapter 23, a tale of two thieves. I'm going to read verses 39 through 43. So Luke's going to use the word criminals here. Matthew refers to them as robbers, as thieves. Matthew chapter 27. But I want to read here this passage in Luke verses 39, uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. So again, so well, let, me, let me start over context, right? The crucifixion has occurred. Jesus is on the cross. And there are two criminals, as Luke records, two thieves are hanging next to him. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for, our, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. So we see here salvation was granted to a thief. Granted to him due to that thief's trust and belief as Jesus, the Messiah. As the king. The king. See, the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows that where Jesus is going. He knows that he's the king because it's Jesus' kingdom. Amen? He's going to 
to the kingdom. And he says, remember me when you enter in. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Salvation was granted because of this thief's trust and belief in Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 says, this is Paul teaching the Romans. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Psalm 103 applies. He doesn't doesn't look at our sin. Going back to the passage that Charlie mentioned earlier, sin is gone, for you will be saved. And picking up verse 10, Romans 10, 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We saw that in Luke chapter 23 with the criminal. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, even thieves. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity to open your word, to study it, to, to be reminded of, um, reminded of what your commands tell us. It's a good thing that we are reminded of, of sin and just how much it has permeated and crept into society and, and ruining and messing with what you've created, distorting what you've created. It is important for us to be able to see it with a clear eye so we can call it out for what it is and avoid it. As believers, as people of the kingdom, you have called us to be holy, to set ourselves apart. Father, we need you. We need your help in this path to sanctification. Father, we thank you as believers that that you convict us of our sin. If we're here today feeling itchy, can't sit still in our seat because some of this stuff is rest, we're wrestling with. Father, thank you for that conviction because it makes it clear to us. Because in that moment, we're getting a glimpse of your holiness, of your righteousness, and that in and of ourselves, we are unworthy to be next to you. I'm reminded of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he's standing in the throne room and he's like a naked man in front of, in front of, of, of God, the king in the temple. And he says, woe is me. In other words, I'm a dead man. Because he knows how much sin is in him and how much sin he's surrounded in in, his, in the world. Father, thank you for that conviction. And Father, thank you for your son you sent to us to save us from our sin so that we could be a new creation and to recognize sin for what it is, to to remove ourselves from it, to repent and to turn to you for salvation and sanctification. Father, make us holy. Help us to show your light to the world. Father, let your word be known and you be glorified over all things. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.